Uh, today, we are back in our study through God's Word as we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Uh, we're in chapter 12. Paul will continue his explaining to the Corinthian church what it means to be an, an apostle, a true apostle, as he counters the claims of the false apostles that had infiltrated the church. Such a terrible thing where people come into the church and start causing division and start contradicting what God's Word says. I mean, it's such a difficult thing when the enemy cannot destroy you from the outside, uh, so he tries to move his way inside. And we've seen this in our study through the book of Nehemiah at house groups. And it's just interesting how we'll be covering something along those lines in our study uh, today. I think the Lord is trying to tell us something in His Word. Paul will be giving another personal insight uh, to his life. And again, if you're joining us for the first time in 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with educating the church in regards to his connection to them and that he planted the church. He led them to the Lord. He shared the Gospel with them. And it was his responsibility to lead them according to what the Scriptures tell us. So I have three points for you this morning. Point number one is this, the heavenly experience. The heavenly experience. In verse 1, 2 Corinthians 12, it says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, if you've ever wondered what a vision is, a vision is seeing something in the spiritual realm. Uh, something that uh, isn't in the physical world. It's a spiritual insight. A revelation. You might wonder, well, what's the difference between a vision and a revelation? Well, a revelation is when the Lord pulls back the, the veil, so to speak, or pulls back the curtain and reveals a truth to you uh, that wouldn't be there just on the surface level. There is a record of Paul the Apostle being stoned to death back in Acts chapter 14. And maybe some of you can recall to mind that story where Paul and Barnabas had been doing ministry and there was a man that had been handicapped, crippled since he was since birth. He couldn't walk. And Paul healed him. Paul and Barnabas were there and he healed him and this man began to walk. And those in Lystra thought that Barnabas and Paul were gods. Particularly, they thought that, that Barnabas was Zeus and that Paul was Hermes. And they started worshiping them. Yet as quickly as they were hailing them as gods, it says in Acts 14, verses 19-20, through 20, it says, Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city again. Paul says in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 12, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Now, he speaks in third person until verse 7, and we believe that he is speaking and referring to himself in this particular instance um, that we just read in Acts 14. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, some people and, and scholars have argued, well, you know, Paul just had an outer body experience. Uh, some say, well, he only had a vision. It was actually a vision of these type of things. But Paul says that he doesn't know which one it was. And so we'll go with that. We don't know which one it was because Paul says, I don't know, only God knows. In verse 3 it says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. 
So quite possibly, when Paul was in Lystra and he was stoned to the point where men thought he was dead, they thought he was dead, his friends thought that he was dead. They dragged him outside of the city that he was caught up into paradise. Now, he's not referring to Hawaii or Fiji. You know, this isn't what he's talking about here today, though those places are pretty nice. He's referring to a heavenly experience. Caught up to the third heaven. Caught up to paradise. When you think of that word, paradise, maybe it started to ring a little, little bell in your cross-reference section of your brain. Paradise. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, crucified between two criminals, and one said to Jesus, after the other was blaspheming Jesus and railing on Him, He said, and I'm paraphrasing, hey, we deserve to be here, but this man's done nothing wrong. And He asked Jesus, He says, when you come into your kingdom, remember Me. And in Luke 23, verse 43, it's recorded for us that Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing thing it is to hear from God. You will be with me in paradise. Just this past Wednesday, I performed one of my oldest friend's father's funeral. And this was a rough week for for a lot of us. And uh, he went home to be with the Lord after battling cancer. And just two weeks ago or so, I was visiting him in the hospital and he was completely emaciated as the the cancer had just taken its toll on him. And because he was in the military, we're out at the the Riverside National Cemetery and, you know, they performed all all the, all the ceremonial things that were customary for someone that was a serviceman. But it was a very hard funeral for me to perform because it was for one of my, my friends. But the glorious thing about that moment that Guy breathed his very last breath is that he was immediately in the presence of God in paradise. He was in heaven. He was free from that pain. He was in a lot of pain uh, towards the end there. He was free from that cancer. See, heaven is a very real place. And for the Christian, you never lose your connection to the Lord. You never lose your consciousness of being in Christ. Even to leave that body. So, heaven is real. Paul spoke of it. Jesus spoke of it. And all those that have faith in Jesus like Paul did will spend eternity there. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says we are confident. Yes, well pleased. Rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So he says that he was caught up to paradise and he says that there were things that he heard and things that he saw, no doubt, that human language could not adequately describe. Heaven was such a place that Paul said it would be a crime. Literally, a crime to attempt to describe in earthly words what it was like. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think since I was a little, chill, a little child, and I think our children do the same thing, where we wonder what heaven must be like. Oh, I wonder what heaven's going to be like. You know, in the book of Revelation, we have things that are describing, you know, the streets paved with gold, and, and, and the glorious new city of Jerusalem, uh, uh, the, 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 the inhabitants of heaven, if you will, you know, worshiping God, uh, those wearing crowns, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea as they're worshiping the Lord. You know, sometimes kids will talk about heaven, and I know that I did when I was a child. I know Hudson does now. You know, and they'll say, you know, heaven's a place where children are in charge. And I'm like, no, actually, that's called earth. We're already there. Really, heaven is such a wonderful place. It really is. We can't even wrap our heads around it. 
We can't even understand what it's like. We're, words are just incapable of describing it. I remember seeing this video. Maybe you saw it. It kind of went viral sometime back. There was an elderly man who was completely colorblind and wasn't able to see the full rich, uh, richness of, uh, of the technicolor world, you know, so to speak. And they, uh, his family bought him these glasses that when he put them on, he could actually see the world for what it looked like. And he put them on and he just began to, to weep because he had never seen the world like that before. He started weeping because no matter what he thought he knew or what others described to him of what the world looked like, it wasn't the same as seeing it with your own eyes. And so that's what heaven's like. We can try to describe it or dream about it or imagine or whatever it might be. But my friend Guy, as he's in the presence of the Lord, he has seen it for real. And it's a place that you can't describe in any earthly language. And it says in verse 5, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might, verse 6, desire to boast, I will not be a fool. And foolishness is bound up in boasting. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he seems me to be or hears from me. Now, when the truth is in jeopardy, and let's just say something's permeating the body of Christ where it's a lie. The, the truth is being discounted. The truth is being thrown out. There must be those that stand for what is right. Paul wasn't communicating these things so that they would think him to be something spe- special, but rather letting them in on some personal things that he experienced with the Lord. Now, as a side note, Sometimes seeing the great things that the Lord is doing through your life can be a pitfall. Actually seeing the things. I think that's why the Lord by His grace usually doesn't show us how He's using us and that's for our own good. Maybe you wondered, it doesn't seem like God's doing anything through my life or in my life or whatever. It's probably for your own good that He's keeping you in a place of humility. Because He's using you in ways that you don't even understand. Because we can be prone to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think and start boasting in the things that the Lord has done as if it were us that were doing it. And when you get a glimpse of heaven and the reality of hell, you change as a person. The closer you get to God, the more unworthy you realize you are to enter into heaven. So where is boasting then in the presence of the Almighty God and Creator of the universe? Paul says he will not boast in the things that would puff him up, but rather he would boast in what is truth. What is truth? I mean, that's a question that we've been asking as a society. What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? Well, it's found in God's Word. It's found in God's Word. See, the truth that Paul boasted in and lived his life based upon was the very truth that sustained him through his infirmities. That same truth that's found in who God is and in His Word will sustain you too and me as well. Heaven is a real place and Paul saw a glimpse of it. And when you realize that heaven is where we spend eternity and earth is such a small sliver comparatively, our mindset changes. The things that 
we used to be distracted by or discouraged by or, 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 or encumbered by, we find that we're laying aside every weight. We're starting to see things in their proper order of importance. It's not normal to boast in one's infirmities. I don't think that any of us go around boasting in how weak we are in a certain area. I just like to tell you, man, so sweet. I'm so weak in this area. I'm miserable. I mean, it doesn't seem like something that would uh, really puff us up or something that would be a great conversation starter. You know, I'm really good in nothing. I'm really actually terrible in a lot of things. Uh, Paul says, I'll boast in my infirmities. I mean, we tend to take self-esteem boosters from things like accomplishments or victories or strengths and abilities, not weaknesses. But I think when you have a glimpse of heaven, this heavenly experience that Paul had, seeing how frail his body is, how his life can be taken from him, but his spirit would live on, something changed with him. So Paul wouldn't boast in his physical abilities, but he would actually boast in his infirmities. How does this work? Well, point number two this morning after point number one, which was the heavenly experience, is the humbling experience. In verse 7, it says, "...unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation..." A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. After he had seen these amazing things in heaven, and after the Lord had used him in such a way that he could be puffed up with pride, it says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And that thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Now, the word here, really rather the phrase, messenger of Satan, fascinates me. I don't know if it does for you. Because I recall two instances in the Bible now where the Lord uses a messenger of Satan to accomplish His work. Now, this might sound mind-boggling to you know this this concept might sound mind-boggling in the life of a Christian but let me explain the first occurrence that we that I like to point out to you is with Saul the king of Israel Saul had disobeyed God and was in a bad place spiritually he was in a terrible place where he had had become hard-hearted to the things of the Lord he had seriously disobeyed God and this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 14 through 15 it says but the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him and Saul's servant said to him surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you And as we read this at first glance, we might think and might even be a little confused about this. A distressing spirit from God was sent to Saul? Was this really from God or was this a mistake? Well, let me tell you very simply, no, this was not a mistake. We read it correctly. Saul had rejected there the Lord as we read in Samuel. And the Lord allowed this distressing spirit to trouble Saul. You might think, I don't understand that. How could the Lord use a distressing spirit to accomplish His work? For what purpose was this allowed to happen? We might ask. I think that's a very good question to ask if you're studying the Bible. Well, the purpose was for Him to turn back to the Lord. To the Lord. 
See, the Lord can employ any means necessary for accomplishing His work. For Saul, it may have been a means for repentance where the Lord said, you have rejected Me. You are in a place of disobedience. And so now this distressing spirit can be used for him to cry out to God, Lord, I pray that You would please forgive me. Lord, I repent. Have mercy upon me. Like the psalmist David did, as King David did. Over and over and over again, he cried out saying, Lord, forgive me. I have sinned. Blot out my transgressions. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, smite my enemies, but Lord, have mercy on me. And this is what it was used for. For Paul, he writes that it was a means for him to remain humble before God. Interesting. There's nothing quite like experiencing such a difficulty that you are emptied of yourself. But the Bible tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Due to the abundance of revelations that Paul had received, there was a check against his pride. There was something there that would keep him in a place of safety. You might think, why would the Lord allow this? How would the Lord allow this? How could this be in in conjunction with the Lord's plan? Well, I think it's far better to be checked in our pride than for our pride to destroy us. And I think the Lord tells us that in His Word. In verse 8, listen to this, and maybe you can identify with Paul as he says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. This is Paul the Apostle himself. Three times, Paul begged God, Lord, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. Now, there is a lot of conjecture about what that thorn in the flesh was. Many believe that it was an issue with his eyes where he had terrible infections, droopy, runny eyes. His eyesight was affected by this. Ironically, if that was the case, this man who saw tremendous things in the Spirit would be hindered from seeing things with his physical eyes. But what a reminder to not lean on what he can see, but to trust in that which he cannot see. Have you ever begged God to change something in your life only to come to realize that God was doing something far greater? And that He was not going to change the situation of the person, but He was going to change the person in the situation. He wasn't going to remove you from this. He was going to use this to change you. This is exactly what happened with Paul. In verse 9, listen to the Lord's response as Paul the Apostle himself asked God three times, please, I beg you, Lord, take this away from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How must Paul have felt about this response from the Lord? How would we have responded? How are we responding to not getting the answer that we want from the Lord? Would we have been angry? I don't want Your grace, God. I want Your miracle. I want You to miraculously change this situation. I don't need the grace. I need a change. I want to be out of this situation. Do you remember what Paul wrote back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Listen, I'll read it to you. It's verses 17 and 18. He says, 
And this is the man who begged God. He says, For our light affliction is but for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Are eternal. This is all the more powerful when considering the possibility of the thorn in Paul's flesh being a terrible eye condition. Man, I don't look at the things which are seen. This stuff, it's temporal. The things that the Lord is doing in my life are eternal. And compared to what is waiting me in heaven, these light afflictions are but for a moment. And they're working something in me. The things in this life are temporary. And the Lord's grace that it's at work in my life is accomplishing far more for me than if the Lord were to take me out of my situation. That's the thing that we need to focus on. We might say, Lord, I don't want the grace. I want the miracle. Take me out of here. But the grace of God that's at work in your life, even this very moment, is far greater than you realize. It's far greater. So why would Paul say that he would most gladly boast in his weakness? And the Greek word for boast is really to glory on account of something. He said he would rather boast or Glory on account of him having weaknesses? Why? In verse 9, he says, I will most gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ resting upon you. So that the strength, the power, the ability of Jesus would take control of his life. I've seen what heaven's like. I've seen the evil in this world. I've seen what God can do. And the Lord working His grace in my life is far greater for me. Is doing something far greater for me than if I were just to be removed from all difficulty. The Lord's doing something in my life. In verse 10, He says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is this a contradiction? When I'm weak, then I'm strong? How in the world are you weak and strong at the same time? In the context of what he's writing, when Paul is weak in himself, Christ is strong in him. This is the strength that we need. This is what you need. This is what I need. So when I'm going through those difficult times, and when I'm struggling with the enemy's mind games, or with how I feel, or just the circumstance that I'm dealing with or wrestling with, I need to know that it's not about my strength, but it's about the strength of God resting upon me. That's what we rely upon. So Paul had this heavenly experience, but then what a humbling experience to have from the Lord, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to keep him in a place of dependency and humility so that he would not fall. So that the Lord could work in Paul. This, what is described as an exceeding weight of glory through his life. And that he would come to understand that his light affliction was but for a moment and the end game, the end result was something far greater than if a miracle were to take place in his life. 
So to take pleasure in these things that Paul says he boasts in means that Paul recognized that the infirmities, the reproaches, the needs, the persecutions, and the distresses that he experienced for Christ's sake were good for him and the furtherance of the Gospel. Maybe you can think upon a time in your life or maybe you're going through something right now that is causing you to draw near to the Lord. We glory in those things for they're producing in us an exceeding amount of glory. Paul, who loved the Corinthian church more than they could ever know, has had to use up now so much valuable time as he's writing these things and explaining, hey, this is the mark of an apostle. These are the experiences of a man that is walking with the Lord. Sharing the truth in relation to the lies that are being spread about him from those false apostles that have infiltrated the church. He shares with them now the painful truth of ministering to people in the church. And that leads us to our third and final point, which I've entitled the hurtful experience. In verse 11, he says, I have become a fool in boasting, and you've compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I'm nothing. This is the attitude that belongs to a true servant of the Lord. This. Though Paul met all the criteria for being an apostle, he realized that in spite of all that, God's grace allowed him to participate in. He was nothing in and of himself. So I think you could say that that thorn in the flesh kept him exactly where he needed to be. God, help us to walk humble. Help us to walk humble before the Lord regardless of how He uses us. When we start to think of something as being from us, it's no longer God's grace. And if it's no longer God's grace, then it's the work of the flesh. And if it's a work of the flesh, then that just doesn't end well ever. In verse 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance. In signs, in wonders, in mighty deeds. These mark the true apostleship. The beginning of the church. For what is it, verse 13, in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. The only way that it says that they were inferior to the other churches is that they didn't support Paul's ministry financially. He says, forgive me that I didn't charge you for the ministry that took place in your church because there were certain, and we covered this some time back, but that the men would come in and that they would charge the church to hear God's Word. They would say, hey, you've got to buy a ticket at the door. And then the church believed that that meant that there was value attributed to what that person had to say even though they weren't even teaching God's Word but they paid for it. They charged they must be legitimate. But Paul who came and said, hey, I'm not hindering anybody from hearing God's Word. You come in here free of charge. They thought that there was a problem with that. And he says in verse 14, now for the third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be burdensome to you for I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents but the parents for the children. In verse 15, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. He's like, I'm not looking for what you can do for me. This is the mark of a true minister of the Gospel. He is not looking for what people can do for Him. 
but rather he is looking at what he can do to help their relationship grow with the Lord. See, Paul was their spiritual father. And the father laid up for the children, not the children for the father. In verse 15, his heart is clearly displayed for all of us to see. He will spend and be spent for their souls. He will utilize whatever resources are at his disposal to help them, even his very life. This is the mark of the, of the true minister of the Lord, one who is not seeking to use the people of the Lord for his own gain, but rather to use whatever he has to help those in need. The hurtful thing that took place in the ministry of Paul the Apostle was that the more he helped people, ironically, the more they felt he did not do enough. The more he sought to minister to those particular people in need, the more they hurt him. It says the more that he abounded in love for them, the less that they cared for him. The more that he attempted to communicate his love for them, the less they loved him loved him and this is an unfortunate truth in the ministry that the individuals that receive the most attention and the most aid are typically the ones that hurt the church the most interesting how that works out paul dealing with this i led them to the lord planted this church ministered to them established them helped them i love them and they're doing these hurtful things, saying these hurtful things. And I'm sorry that I have to reestablish what the truth is from God's Word. But regardless, however as unfortunate of a reality that is, he says in verse 16, but be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? Verse 18, I urged Titus and I sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. My team, he says, the guys that I sent to you, we walked in the same manner. We treated you in the same way. Nobody took advantage of you. Nobody mistreated you. We did everything that was right before the Lord. Paul's sole purpose was to build up the body of Christ, namely the Corinthians. And there are some ministries, you know, and you have to be aware of this, and it's a reality, it's an unfortunate reality, but it's reality just, as, just the same. There are some ministries that seek to use the people of God for their own gain. I mean, they're so awful sometimes that they've become memes on Instagram where you see these guys, you know, just, uh, you know, televangelists and people, you know, saying, you know, get your credit cards and, and open up, you know, new accounts and take out loans and send your money in. You know, I'll send you, you know, my favorite tie. And he's like, oh, not, maybe not this tie, but one of my favorite ties or whatever, you know. And, and, and this kind of stuff happens all the time and people get ripped off. They fleece the flock. This was not Paul's philosophy of ministry. It was called to help people. He didn't pressure them to give financially. No one was taking advantage of anyone and they knew that before God is their witness. He said, I know this to be true. Before God. And really, that's all that matters before God. 
Because people may say things and think things and do things, but you need to stand upon what the truth is. And you need to have a clear conscience before the Lord. That is the most important thing that we can have. But what a hurtful thing to have to experience where the people that you care about the most are the ones hurting you the most. The ones you try to help more are the ones that slander you more. He says in verse 20, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. We'll stop there for a second. The works of the flesh plague the Christian and the church. They cannot be left not dealt with. There were members of the church in Corinth that were fighting with each other. They were fighting with each other. There were members of the church that were jealous of each other. Oh man, he just got a new chariot. I still have my sandals. Or whatever it might be. I don't know. There were members of the church losing their tempers with one another. Flying off the handle. And they're the body of Christ. There were members of the church that had selfish ambitions in the church. Self-centered with selfish ambitions. There were people in the church that were backbiting. Whispering about other people in the church. Saying terrible things. There are people in the church that were conceited. It says conceits. They were puffed up with pride. They were arrogance. There were people that were filled with arrogance in the church. Lastly, the church was in a place of instability and confusion over the disturbance of sin. This is a huge thing. When sin is allowed to permeate a person's life, it causes a disturbance in your life. It affects your relationships. When sin is left unchecked in the church and things are brought to the leadership's attention, they must be dealt with. They have to be. And then they need to be dealt with according to God's Word. These things must either be repented of or dealt with severely. This is why he says that I may come and find you in a place that I don't wish you to be. I would rather for you to do what's right before God so that I don't have to come and correct it. I'd rather be in a place where we can enjoy each other's fellowship and talk about the great things that the Lord is doing and serve the Lord together. I hope that I don't come and find you in a place where you haven't gotten yourself together spiritually. And then he says, because of that, then you might find me in a place that you do not wish me to be. Having to exercise the authority that God has given me and rather the responsibility of having to deal with these things in a severe manner because they're wrong before the Lord. So can't we just all do what's right? Can't we just all hold up our end? And that way, things will be better together. He says, lest when I come again, verse 21, where we conclude today, he says, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. So Paul, and I think any pastor in his right mind, would just wish to have them walking rightly before God so that they would be able to see the pastor, the leader, as they wish. Greeting them in the name of the Lord. Rejoicing together at what 
great things God has done instead of Paul having to come to correct those that were in sin. Remember sometime back I said, you know, ministry would be a lot easier if you did not care about the people. If you didn't care, and I didn't care about any of you, you guys could be having terrible times and I'd be like, oh man, it stinks to be you, but I'm great. You know, when you care about somebody, when they hurt, you hurt. The sin that's in their life, it grieves you. Paul's heart broke over those that were living in sin and had not repented. He said uncleanness and fornication and lewdness. These things they were practicing in the church. So those that are hindering the work of the Lord and causing people to sin in so doing are putting themselves in a very dangerous position. Big picture is that there were people in the church that were causing people to sin and to go against the Lord. You do not want to be in that position. You don't want to find yourself in opposition to the work of the Lord. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to stand in the way of those fulfilling the Lord's work. Don't trip them up. Don't get them to stumble. You do not want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. You want to walk with the Lord and you want to make sure you are helping people do the same. And if those in Corinth would not shape up, God would deal with them seriously. So that should be a huge encouragement for us. Let's just do what's right before the Lord. Let's do what's right. If it's in the flesh, that does not end well ever. Ever. Walk humbly before the Lord. Regardless of the pain you might be experiencing, maybe you've had some terrible things said about you. Maybe you had people that you thought were Christians that have done things that were wrong. And maybe it's caused you to stumble. Get your eyes focused on the Lord. Get them off of the other people. Man will let you down. God will never let you down. Stay in the place where you're focused on your relationship with the Lord and then let the ministry flow from that place. And maybe it means restoring somebody, helping somebody that's been overcome by sin. Maybe it will mean hey, we're done. Like, this is it. But may the Lord continue to have His hand upon you. May He bless your home. May you be responsible for the things that are coming in and going out of that place. And even more importantly, your own personal life. What's coming in and what's going out needs to be that which pleases the Lord. And if there's areas in your life that are sin, destroy you. If you act upon sin, that's going to hurt somebody else. And you don't want either of those things. God doesn't want either of those things. I don't want any of those things. So stay focused on that which is truly the most important. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for this church, Lord, that we can call home. Where we can come and receive from You and worship You. And Lord, give back to You. Serving. Where we can be further equipped. Ministering. And Lord, we ask that You would have Your hand upon our church. Lord, we ask, God, that You would help us to be that example of what the church is to be to this world. Lord, we ask, God, that You would please help us to walk humbly before You. Regardless of the pain that we may have experienced, maybe from other people that have called themselves Christians, may we keep our eyes focused on You and not them, not the situation. And Lord, I ask that You would help us to be heavenly minded. That You would give us, Lord, a proper perspective on this earth because we know what happens after this life on this earth is over. And so Lord, we worship You. We praise You. We say thank You 
For you are a great and mighty God. And so, Lord, thank you so much. We just say thank you from our own hearts. Thank you, Lord. And we worship you now. Jesus. Name.